we know what works. And so we just have to do what makes sense and what's right from a public health standpoint and deal with the rest of it as best we can. So hopefully, you know, these stimulus packages and all that kind of stuff will help a bit with all the badness going on as far as economically and all that. But even if it doesn't, you have to just stop. We have to stop it. Medicine Remix. Remix. My advice to America would be that these guidelines are a national stay-at-home order. A new analysis suggests that you're more likely to die of COVID-19 than a stroke or a car accident at this point in the United States. It's a very difficult situation, as, as was predicted. This is going to get worse before it gets better, for sure. Welcome to Inside the Hospital a medicine remixed original series that focuses on healthcare workers on the front line of the current pandemic and gaining insights from their unique perspectives. In our last episode, you heard from New York City emergency room physician Dr. Calvin Sun give his perspectives from the front lines of the epicenter of the COVID-19 pandemic. On today's episode, we'll take a step back from the front line and wrap about some big picture public health stuff and talk some immunology shop with our friend, Dr. Akila Jefferson, who's a board certified allergist and immunologist who did her fellowship at the National Institutes of Health and trained under Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is basically the guy right now in the United States as the nation's leading expert on infectious disease and immunology. I started off my conversation with Akila about training with Dr. Fauci. He's the one person when I see on the news that I feel knows what they're talking about, to be 100% honest, and that I can trust what he's saying. You know, he's very data-driven and really looks at the facts of the matter and kind of what's going on and what makes sense not just um, gut feelings about things. 3.4% is really a false number. Now, this is just my hunch. We need hard facts to get through all of this. He's the head of NIAID, which is the National Institute for um, Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. You know, NIH has all these different, you know, institutes. But under NIAID for fellowships, there are allergy and immunology fellows, and then there are just straight up infectious disease fellows. Mm -hmm. And so I was one of the allergy and immunology fellows there. Fauci would round with us on the wards. We had our own inpatient allergy and immunology and infectious disease service that all of the fellows sort of uh, co-managed. Um, and we had residents and medical students and whatnot. So he didn't round every single day with us, but we rounded three days a week and he would probably come on rounds maybe two or three times a month, something like that. But it was yeah. a big deal when yeah. Dr. Fauci was there. You know, yeah. you know, you, you had to be on top of everything. You had to, and the crazy thing is you would imagine, uh, you know, he's not there all the time because he's a very busy guy that maybe he wouldn't know all the details of every patient, but he did. I'm focused, man. You know, we just had to sort of be on top of things and, you know, try to try to make him proud, which is what we wanted to do for all of our attendings, but especially for him because we all respect him so much. And the funny thing with him is that I'm also connected to his wife. His wife is a nurse by training, but she's a bioethicist mm. and she um, she's the head of bioethics at NIH. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but I did a, when I did my allergy fellowship, I also did a bioethics fellowship at NIH at the same time. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. And so I sort of, I shared their family, which I was very fortunate to have. And both of them, very, very awesome people and very smart, very passionate. And you can just trust what they're saying because they're doing everything based on good information. And if the information is not there, then we can't jump to conclusions just yet. We have to, you know, go through a process, which I think is, One thing he's been trying to educate the American public on is that everything is a process and you have to go through the correct channels to know if something works or if it doesn't work. You have to really 
get the data, analyze it. You know, when he was coming up, I don't know if you saw the um, congressional hearings about two weeks ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. And he was going through where they got these mortality numbers from. Um, if you look at the cases that have come to the attention of the medical authorities in China, and you just do the math, the math is about 2%. If you look at certain age groups, certain risk groups, the fatality is much higher. But as a group, it's going to depend completely on what the factor of asymptomatic cases are. So if you have asymptomatic cases that are a lot, it's going to come down. What we're hearing right now on a recent call from the WHO this morning is that there aren't as many asymptomatic cases as we think, which made them elevate, I think, what their mortality is. The mortality for seasonal flu is 0.1%. So even if it goes down to 1%, it's still 10 times more fatal. We have to bring all of that into play, and we're under-testing and X, Y, and Z, and you know, coming up with good um, information that makes sense based on what we have. One of the reasons we wanted to have Akilah on the show this week is because not only are we in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, but we also happen to be in the middle of cold and flu season, as well as allergy season. So we wanted to ask an expert how to tell the difference between all of these very different conditions. It's so funny, every time I get sick, I immediately go into denial mode and I'm just like, oh, it's just allergies. It's just, this is, this is totally just allergies. Um, and then, you know, uh, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. So how are the symptoms of like COVID-19 different than, you know, cold and flu symptoms or allergies? And how can you, without getting tested, maybe tell the difference? Right, absolutely. So I always say allergies rarely make you feel horrible a little stuffy, a little sneezy, but you don't feel like you need to get in bed mm-hmm. and curl up and your muscles don't hurt, your muscles don't ache. You almost never have a fever, but there are some instances where you can have like hay fever types of, um, of things, but it's not all that common. Um, but allergies are generally very uncomfortable, but you don't necessarily feel sick, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Cold and flu, similar symptoms, runny nose, stuffy nose, sometimes sneezing. If you have asthma, that complicates things too, which can be triggered by allergies or by viruses or bacterial infections. But generally speaking, colds, you know, just a little bit of congestion, nothing major other than that. Not really muscle aches and things like that. When you get muscle aches and fevers, you start to think of flu and other more serious viral or bacterial infections. Flu is usually sudden onset. So, you know, within a few hours, you're down. COVID-19, on the other hand, it seems like it's a little bit, uh, it takes a bit longer for the symptoms to progress. So you may get a fever first, and then another few days you get kind of muscle aches, and then another few days you get a cough, and then it progresses from there. Um, So the timeline is, is very, very different. Also flu, almost never, unless you have an underlying lung condition, most people did not cause severe respiratory distress. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's another major difference or major coughing, you know, for that matter. So I would say for allergies and, you know, it's hard because this is allergy season. Exactly. And it's also flu and cold season. So I it's know. just like, oh, my God, what do I have? What do I have? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, oh, my God, is that you? Um, so, you know, I, I say if you generally feel OK, and you have a history of allergies, it's probably safe to assume that it's allergies if you just have a stuffy nose or sneezing. And I had to remind myself of that because I have asthma that acts up during springtime. And I was like, oh, my chest is a little tight. 
is it <laughs> what is going on and I was like oh no 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 let me use my inhaler and you know like let me remember that this is actually the exact feeling I have every single year right. at this exact same time and if I'm just playing statistics you know that's most likely that I don't have known contacts and whatnot with right. um, COVID-19 that's the other thing too sick contacts recent travel you have to put it into context so you know those are the the main things I would say allergies sneezing runny nose sometimes stuffy nose itchiness colds just a little bit of stuffy nose and things like that but not not really muscle aches um and then flu you get into the muscle aches and fevers but quick onset right. and then COVID-19 is a bit more prolonged course it seems much more severe symptoms too including you can have GI symptoms like diarrhea which may or may not be why all the toilet paper is gone but <laughs> it seems unlikely that that's the reason people are nuts well that, that's a different subject yeah. but um <laughs> so with with allergies um you can can you get a cough sometimes so usually dry cough comes when you have asthma <laughs> and allergies most allergy just straight up allergy coughs are caused by post nasal drip so they're usually more phlegmy mucusy coughs and if you take care of sort of your nasal congestion and all that mucus then you can get rid of it um, but if you have asthma then you can have that deeper more dry less productive cough but again you know it's for adults you can't have adult onset asthma but it's not one of those things that's very common. So if you're never had asthma in your life, even as a kid, and all of a sudden you get a crazy cough, if you're playing the odds again, the likelihood of you just having adult onset asthma is a little bit lower probably right. in this situation than another diagnosis. Gotcha. So, you know, let's say somebody did develop like a, you know, mild, you know, dry cough and, you know, starting to kind of feel run down. Would you recommend people right now just taking an over-the-counter allergy medication like a Zyrtec or Allegra to see if their symptoms go away? Like, is there any utility to doing that? I would say um, it wouldn't hurt, you know, to try something over-the-counter. The good thing with over-the-counter antihistamines, at least, is that they work pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, things like Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, those work within like half an hour mm -hmm. of taking it. So if you take it and it really does nothing, it's, you know, that kind of makes me lean against allergies a bit. Um, that's usually for, you know, so I would use an oral antihistamine, a long acting oral antihistamine for things like itchiness, runny nose, sneezing. For congestion, it doesn't work as well. Mm -hmm. So if you mostly have nasal congestion, then I would probably use some sort of a, a medicated nasal spray, like intranasal steroid um, to see. Now those don't work so fast. So they take a few days to really kick in but they work a little bit so if you used uh, fluticasone then you know the first day it helps a little bit but by day four or five it really helps a whole lot more. so i think if you really don't see any difference at all with your symptoms after taking something then you have to kind of switch your differential to you know so something other than allergies um that could be causing your symptoms gotcha so you know back to like COVID 19 um is there like a, a seasonal component to this? Is it too early to say that it's going to, you know, be something that, you know, winds up coming up? Is this something that's going to be through the summer that we're going to see this? Or is it going to go away for a little bit and then come back in the fall? Is there any anything that you're reading that suggests one way or the other? Yeah, I think it's a little too early to say, but um, Dr. Fauci was on a program sometime this past week, and he did talk about some evidence that there may be some seasonality to it. It is conceivable and maybe likely that when we get to the next season, we may see another blip of this, but it would really be different. And I'll tell you why it's different. 
because a certain percentage of the population will already have been immune, a bit of what we call herd immunity, we likely by that time will have tested a number of drugs. Hopefully some of them will be effective in treatment. And as I mentioned, just a couple of days ago, we started a vaccine trial and we hopefully within a year to a year and a half would have a vaccine. So although we're preparing and maybe expecting for it to come back, it's not going to come back in the same circumstances as it first came. And so it would sort of be like a flu season, um, a similar idea. And so uh, in that context, they were talking about vaccines and how, you know, a vaccine would take about a year probably to develop and to really be out on the market. But the vaccine, if it is successful, would be good for the next season. So if you can vaccinate everybody, the next time this happens in another, you know, nine months or whatever, eight to nine months, then that would work. But, you know, the evidence is not very clear. But, you know, I think that's with everything. We're so early in the the days of this whole um, pandemic that we're trying to make things make sense. Some evidence points towards that. And there's a little bit of evidence looking at warm weather versus cold weather. That's not really, from what I've read, it's not super clear. So I think it's hard to say, but we'll see, time will, time will tell. We're thinking that we'll see a peak in the U.S. sometime in the next like month to two months. Yeah. So, you know, once we get up there and then the peak starts to come down, I think we'll be able to tell the pattern of the illness a little bit better. Gotcha. And can people become reinfected with this? And if so, after how long could, you, could that potentially happen? And why is that happening? That's a good question. Um, So there is a report in China, at least, of reinfection. So my question for that is, was it a person who was never fully clear of their infection to begin with? Right. And, um, you know, and then they're just getting symptoms again, which I think is probably happening in a lot of people. Yeah. Um, or is it that the, the, the antibodies that your body makes when you get infected with this particular thing kind of go up quickly during the acute phase and then come down really fast after you've recovered, which for some respiratory viruses is the case. You don't have long lasting immunity against that thing. Or is the virus mutating in some sort of way? where um, whatever your body did make antibodies against previously, it's just not catching it the second time around. So it's definitely possible. Flu mutates all the time. You can get reinfected with new strains of flu. And so it's not, I don't think the science is out there just yet to know if there are multiple strains, to know with certainty that there are multiple strains of of COVID-19. But I don't think it's um, unreasonable to think that that's probably either happening or going to happen. And then the question of the antibodies against it. So there's no great antibody test. You know, all the testing they're doing is kind of viral load types of testing and like PCR testing, Mm -hmm. but there's no good antibody test so we can measure antibodies in the kind of long term after someone's recovered. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, if you're just losing that coverage, then maybe it's not a mutation. You just are, you know, not protected anymore. So I know it's it's like super complicated, but on a very rough level, how does creating a vaccine, how does that even look? You know, I'm orthopedics. This is like, you know, the, <laughs> there's so many memes going around right now of like, 
you know, stay inside because you don't want your orthopedic surgeon like treating your pneumonia. So this is a lot of this is like a flashback to, to medical school for me, you know, just trying to get informed on just basic immunology. Um, so, uh, yeah, with that, you know, how, how, how does that how does that work? How does creating a vaccine work? So vaccines for this one, for COVID-19, the backbone of it is one that, that was already in process for um, SARS. So it's a coronavirus, um, kind of general coronavirus specific vaccine. It's That's sort of the backbone of the whole thing. But basically you can have live vaccines, you can have killed vaccines where you take the actual virus or bacteria and you take certain components, certain proteins from that virus and or bacteria and you can replicate it in certain ways to then figure out, does it kind of target B cells? Does it target T cells? Does it target NK cells? But what you wanna do is figure out which kind of immune response the body has against that thing. And it could be a protein within the, um, the bacteria or virus that causes it. It could be um, a carbohydrate within it that causes it. Um, usually it's proteins. Sometimes it's a mixture of the two. And then if you can figure out what that thing is that causes the biggest immune response, then you can basically replicate that. And a vaccine is that, that particular piece of protein from the virus that helps the body make um, a response, an immune response to it. So for COVID-19, let's say, for instance, if you know that there's a particular um, protein on its shell, that is what the body, our bodies recognize, and then the uh, virus binds to our body based on that protein, then what you want to do is target that protein so that then the, our body doesn't recognize it in the same way and it doesn't bind, and then you won't have um, insertion of the, of the viral RNA into our cells and then replication. I think a lot of people are like, this vaccine's going to be like, you know, a few weeks away, right? Like a few months away. No. Why is it going to take uh, a year to like a year and a half? And, you know, the reality is just how sure you have to be that it's not going to make people worse. And, you know, the testing that is going to be required in order to get it to that level, you know, where it's approved for, for mass use, because that would truly be a disaster. Right. This would not be the first time if it happened that a vaccine that looked good in initial safety actually made people worse. Oh God. There was the history of the respiratory syncytial virus vaccine in children, which paradoxically made the children worse. One of the HIV vaccines that we tested several years ago actually made individuals more likely to get infected. So you can't just go out there and give it unless you feel that in the field, when someone is getting infected and exposed, being vaccinated doesn't make them worse. That's why you got to do a trial. I think they've got like some early volunteers, right? That is what I read. Mm -hmm. They have about 50. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Damn. Like I know it's wild. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> I'm just thinking like, would I do it? Like, <laughs> would I volunteer? Nah. Not going to be able to do it. <laughs> So when I was in fellowship, we always had flu vaccine trials going on. You know, overnight, they would be like, oh, on ward, whatever, there are, you know, five flu patients. And we're like, okay, like if they get a fever or something, call us and let us know. But they're injecting people with the flu and <laughs> giving them the flu, this universal flu vaccine, which to date has not worked. Yeah, that's like the holy grail almost, right, in this context. It is, yeah, if we can get a universal. So, you know, what they're thinking is if this, um, you know, this vaccine that they're using is 
has been made for SARS, but it's it could be a universal coronavirus vaccine, so not necessarily just COVID-19. Mm -hmm. The SARS, it could be MERS, it could be whatever. They just have to make sure that the whatever the common protein, it's most likely a protein that is on the virus between those different strains, that mm -hmm. that's what they're targeting. And if it's something that's common that doesn't mutate, then you can target it. With flu, it mutates all the time, so it's really, really hard to do that. A hot topic right now that I've talked to Aquila about is convalescent plasma, which is a blood product collected from people who have recovered from an infection like COVID-19. It contains high amounts of antibodies that can potentially fight the novel coronavirus, but this is not a new treatment by any means. It has been used throughout history against infections like influenza, measles, and polio. More recently, it has been used in SARS and Ebola with some success. Last week, the FDA announced it is allowing COVID-19 convalescent plasma to be used in serious or immediately life-threatening COVID-19 infections as an emergency investigational new drug, which allows emergency use of an investigational drug that has not yet been FDA approved. Another potentially more effective treatment that scientists are trying to develop currently are drugs made with monoclonal antibodies isolated from people who have recovered from COVID-19 infections, as Akila explains here. One way that you could do it in the, in the past is taking blood from someone who's been sick with a thing and then like literally giving that blood to somebody who you don't want to get it, right? right. And, and that was like early, super um, crude vaccines in a way. Yeah. So they are trying to figure out how to make monoclonal antibodies, which are humanized antibodies similar to vaccines, but also very different, basically reverse engineered from people who've been sick. So figuring out how, if I got sick with COVID-19, taking my blood, isolating the antibody that my body made against it, and, and then kind of reverse engineering that to make it sort of a universal antibody you can give people. So we'll see how that goes. One of the other things that I asked Akila about is regarding the common misconception that only old people are getting severely sick from COVID-19. Some of the things that I'm seeing now are showing that at least in the United States, it looks like the demographics that it's affecting might be skewing younger than in other countries. Like, are, are there certain, you know, risk factors that those younger people here in this country, like, you know, is this because of vaping? Is that, because, you know, like, what's the... Yeah, there's some evidence that smoking and vaping may put you at higher risk. You can imagine if your lungs are already a little damaged from chronic inflammation from smoking and or vaping, that any insult may affect you a little bit worse than other people. So that's one thing. That's that's another thing in like China and in Italy, they think men, um, so the amount of men who get sick, but then also the amount of men who are smokers seem right. to be the ones who are super affected. But I think in young people, another hypothesis, at least in Italy and in France, is that it's not necessarily that they have a propensity to become sicker, but that they may have had a bigger viral load infection and then that's why the infection is worse so the thought is maybe people that continuously go out and so you know they have contact with not just one person who is sick but they have contact with 20 people who are sick every single day for you know whatever the amount of time is that the amount of virus that they're exposed to then causes them to have a worse reaction gotcha i know one of the things that it seems like a rule of thumb is like children aren't really being affected by this like you know young kids a, is that true? And like, what role do children play in, in the spread of this? And why aren't they really getting very sick with this? Yeah, so it's kind of true. 
In China, kids definitely didn't get very sick. And、um, the thought is that maybe they had either very mild disease or they were、uh, asymptomatic carriers. Italy and in France and even in the US, it seems like it's a little different. So、um, it seems there's some evidence that infants can get very sick. But kids that are like in that middle range don't really get sick. But then when you get to like late teens, they can get sick again. Why that is, it's not 100% clear if there's something with the immune response or if it's that little babies don't have enough,、um, their immune system is not really developed enough. It's not really, really clear to me. But I think that will all kind of come out. There's some reports today on CNN that there's, a, I think, a 12 year old. In Atlanta, who's critically ill. And some good news to report this morning a 12 year old coronavirus patient named Emma is doing much better. This morning, she's recovering at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Her family doesn't know how she got the virus. So that kind of you know, goes against everything that I just said and everything I think that most people are thinking. We're thinking in general, kids do better than adults for sure, but that they are in a lot of cases spreaders of disease, just like. Lots of other respiratory viruses.、Mm-hmm. So I think that's one thing is COVID 19 clearly, you know, it's a novel, a novel thing. It's really wreaking havoc and it's terrible. But in a, a lot of ways, it behaves in the same way as a lot of other respiratory viruses. So you think of little kids who are in daycare all day and they just maybe have a runny nose、yeah. and they come home and mom and dad get super sick. It's the same kind of process where kids just, for whatever reason, seem to do a little bit better、mm-hmm. um, than, than adults do with that same pathogen. As the medical and scientific community continues to research and develop proper treatments, as well as a vaccine for COVID 19, one of our greatest weapons right now is the term that everyone seems to be using these days social distancing. Social distancing, a new term that's become probably the hottest term there is. Is that a new term, by the way? I almost feel like physical distancing should be the actual term because it's just like social distancing like, sounds cruel. That's like, you know, like <laughs> solitary confinement or something. Still, you can still be social, I guess, because we're living in a virtual world, but I guess. You're nodding your head no, that it's not a,、no. a, a new term, I guess. They can be used interchangeably. All these things are all, have all been used in public health and epidemic and pandemic situations for a long time. Just here in the US, we don't, generally speaking, have to deal with, with this kind of a thing. Yeah. So, just in general, is there anything that we can do to boost our immunity? Are there any particular. You know, exercises, you recommend any supplements? Is there any, you know, are there any best practices, anything we can do to control to try to, you know, avoid getting this? Yeah, to avoid, you know, it's, it's the, the same stuff everyone keeps saying washing your hands, staying six feet away from people who are not in your、um, direct household,、uh, social distancing measures, trying to decrease the amount of exposure you have to others. Sorry, dog is doing something weird. Can pets get this, by the way? <laughs> so, there are conflict, there's conflicting data.、Yeah. There's some things that are like, no, dogs and cats can't get it. But then there are a few things I've seen where it looks like they, they've tested some positive. It doesn't seem like they have symptoms. And it's not clear that they、um, transmit disease.、Uh-huh. But I'm not sure. So, I'm keeping my dog. <laughs> Keeping my dogs inside. No, I keep, I take them for walks. They're fine. Well, I guess since we're on the, this animal topic, like, I mean, this obviously this started 
in an animal, uh, in, in a bat, and then it got transmitted to um, like some kind of a, what is it, like an armadillo kind of creature? or Like a paglonian or pag, something like yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> something I've never heard of, yeah. Chinese scientists suggested last week that pangolins, a scaly species mammal, could have first transmitted the disease to humans. While the research has not been confirmed, animal experts are worried that the potential link to coronavirus could further threaten them. So certain animals are, are transmitters and others are not, because like, I think wasn't the swine flu, did it not that also start in a bat and then got transmitted to a pig? Is that what it was or? Yeah, and then you have like bird flus and things like that. It's just, you know, there there's some something at the molecular level that happens that then allows a species um, jump. Basically, to be honest, right now, it is it doesn't seem clear exactly what that was that allowed that jump. And I think in a lot of cases, it's not 100 percent clear to us why all of a sudden we can become sick with a, a non-human pathogen. But it happens, you know, Ebola, same thing, swine flu, same thing, bird flu, same thing. You know, it happens a lot all the time. But since it's a novel pathogen, right, our bodies have a pretty difficult time handling those sorts of things. Um, and coming up with a good immune response. But, uh, oh, you were asking, sorry, I'm gonna go back. You were asking about yeah, yeah. things to boost okay. immunity. You know, they're the, the measures you can take to decrease your risk of, of exposure and of infection. But there's no good evidence about things that will boost immunity. There's a little bit of data out there about like vitamin D and zinc and uh, vitamin C, but it's not very clear. You know, when I went to the store like two weeks ago out here in California, all the vitamins were gone. Like, yeah. I went to just go buy some multivitamins, just regular stuff. Elderberry was gone, turmeric was gone, zinc was gone, like all the stuff that you could ever think of. And you know, there's anecdotal data that maybe that helps people not get sick as often with viruses or whatever, but in this case, it's certainly not clear. Um, and it's not a slam dunk at all, but there's no harm, most likely, in you know, having a little extra turmeric or taking airborne or, or whatever, there's emergency, which I have a pack at home just in case for myself. Um, yeah. Like I'm buying into it for sure. But you know, you, you do what you have to do. And I think a lot of it too is is sort of us trying to cope with what's going on. Yeah. So if, if you think taking a, a zinc um, supplement will make yeah. you feel better, then you know, that's fine. You know, I feel differently, however, for medications that are indicated for other things that people need. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this whole issue with um, hydroxychloroquine and whatnot and people and azithromycin and people just wanting to stockpile it at home. And like, but you have to remember that there are people with actual conditions where we know they need this medication, patients with lupus or patients who have uh, atypical bacterial infections or whatnot, but we need to use it for that. And it's, you know, we have to, we have to be better as a society to not go overboard with that kind of thing, particularly when there's not good evidence that it actually will work in a lot of people. So the studies for those two things that they're looking at only, I think it was 36 people in those studies um, in France. And it's like, you can't base, you can't base everything on that. And then, you know, I guess just general wellness things, you know, definitely, you know, won't hurt and maybe will help like just getting exercise and sleep and reducing stress, even though it's probably pretty hard to that last one right now with everything going on. It's hard to <laughs> reduce your stress levels, but I think limiting the amount of time on social media and on the internet and limiting the amount of time you're watching the news and trying not to watch these um, press conferences every single day, you know, all that kind of stuff helps. My parents, my mom was like going crazy in the house. 
And I told her, I was like, just get in the car and drive. And she was yeah. like, oh, I didn't think about that. So my parents took an hour drive yesterday <laughs> just yeah. to yeah. get out. Yeah, it's like um, mobile social distancing, yeah. Exactly, doing FaceTime and Zoom and yeah. all that kind of stuff with people so you can still see them. Cause it's, you know, you need to have human interaction. So I get that. Um, we just have to be smart about it. You can't go to the beach and go to spring break. I get Corona, I get Corona. At the end of the day, I'm not gonna let it stop me from partying. You know, I've been waiting. We've been waiting for Miami spring break for a while. About two months we've had this trip playing. You know, that, <laughs> that won't work. I know um, Netflix started this. I, I haven't um, used it yet, but this like watch party. Is it watch party or some yeah. kind of like a, yeah. you could watch net Netflix like with, with other people like, you know, we could watch Contagion together or uh, Outbreak <laughs> <laughs> Pandemic. It's just so funny, like how, you know, not so coincidentally, these movies are like, you know what you need right now? <laughs> My top mm -hmm. suggestions for you is to to watch this movie about the movie that's happening outside of your window. <laughs> exactly, right? So one of them, I can't remember, whichever one is has Morgan Freeman. Is it Contagion or? I think that's Outbreak. Matava is only spread through direct human contact. Now you said that yourself, Sam. That one, the way that they cured it, if you remember, is by taking, like making a monoclonal antibody. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I was like, this is wild. This is a, uh, yeah, this is real life. Yeah. I think they have a lot of smart people working on this stuff and I think as long as everyone cooperates and recognizes that this is terrible for everybody, you know, it's of course no one wants to stay home. No one wants to cancel school and engagements and weddings and all kinds yeah. of things, yeah. but it's necessary. Yeah. You know, our numbers are going up, 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 up exponentially. Yeah. And if we don't do something, it's just going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. At this rate, how long? Do, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's so hard to predict, but any predictions on how long this is going to last, like both the social distancing aspect of it and also just overall, like, you know, how long are we really going to be seeing this virus for? My earliest prediction would be sometime like early to midsummer, to be honest, which social distancing is most important during the kind of this increase in, in cases. Yeah. And once we kind of fall, start falling, then it's not as important. But I think, you know, China, all this started in, they think in December, but yeah. probably yeah. a little bit earlier than that. Yeah. Um, so let's just say November. So it's been November, December, January, February, March, April. So that's like five months in. And they're reporting no new cases just last week. Um, and they were, their measures were... Much more aggressive. Oh, yeah. Right. So we'll see, you know, I think... I think in the U.S. people try not to, especially the government, they try not to shock us too much, right? And so they're slowly, slowly shutting things down. Like, oh, let's close the schools and then next let's do this, next let's do that. When, you know, perhaps, in my humble opinion, the better way to do it would just to be all or none, you know, and, and really just stop the spread um, as aggressively as possible rather than in the piecemeal fashion that we're currently doing because we're being reactive you know yeah every time the numbers go up and they oh gosh we need to do another thing we should just we know what works and so hopefully you know these stimulus packages and all that kind of stuff will help a bit with all the badness going on as far as economically and all that but even if it doesn't you have to just stop we have to stop it and i think for the sort of non-medical public just know this is a day-by-day -day situation. Information, new information comes up every day. Sometimes we get conflicting information, but everybody 
and when I say everybody, I mean in the medical community, in the scientific community, is doing the best they can to, to take that information and then to do what's right with it and what makes sense with it. And so that's not always instant gratification, right? In a world that the world we live in, where everyone wants to know the answer right right this moment, but that's not really how science and medicine works. And so I think if people can grasp that, that it's not going to be, you know, next week that we can give you answers, but in the interim, we're doing the best. That that takes away a little bit of the anxiety, I think, related to all this. That you know you accept it's a day by day, piece by piece thing. And the same with uh, with vaccines and treatments and all that kind of stuff. You have to follow the process. And we can speed up the process, right? But we can't just completely um, disregard the process of making safe and efficacious medications and treatments available to people. And so that process includes clinical trials. It includes, you know, randomization. It includes all these things. You can't just start giving people medicine without, you know, knowing what it does. And so I think as healthcare professionals, we have a duty to make sure we're doing things in the right way and at the same time helping people. And for the general public, we just have to get them to understand that piece, I think, and that will, will help a whole lot. And then last but not least, cdc.gov, WHO, NIAID, NIH, Dr. Fauci, those are good sources. Yeah. New England Journal of Medicine, uh, Journal of the American Medical Association, PubMed, all that is a good source of information that's data and fact-driven and everything else you have to take with a grain of salt. Yeah, we're living in an age of headline reading, so this is, it's gonna be at scale now with everything going on. So you beat me to the punch. I was gonna ask you what, what sources you recommend, and you know I, I second all of those, obviously. Thank you so much. This was uh, this was great. This is unfortunately gonna be going on for a while, so I, I may even have you on again. We'll see. I'd be happy to do it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Medicine Remix fam, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Inside the Hospital. We appreciate you tuning in. And if you got something out of this episode, please, please, please share it with your friends. Big ups to all the healthcare providers out there right now risking their lives to fight for humanity. And big ups to all of you at home firing one of the biggest weapons we have against this thing right now, social distancing. If you have any questions about anything COVID-19 related or otherwise, leave us a voice message on Anchor or hit us up on social and we'll address it in an upcoming episode. If you're a doctor, nurse, physician assistant, healthcare provider of any kind that has a story to tell, we want to hear from you and we want to share your story on the show. So if you're down, please get in touch with us on our social media channels, which will all be linked up in our show notes. Thanks again to our guest for today's episode, Dr. Akila Jefferson. This episode was edited by yours truly, Reach the MCMD, and mixed slash produced by our very own KT. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe, stay home, and keep it locked with the one and only Medicine Remixed. Ooh.